Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wise, the app that makes managing your money in different currencies easy. With Wise, you can send and spend money internationally at the mid-market exchange rate. No guesswork and no hidden fees. Learn more about how Wise could work for you at wise.com. It's State of Ukraine from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel with NPR's best reporting on a war that's changing the world. We've seen the horrific images, bodies found in streets with bullets to the head, blown out buildings and homes in Bucha and other places in Ukraine. Some in the international community are accusing Russia of committing war crimes. Ukraine's president calls it a genocide, a term that is specifically defined as killing or other actions committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group. Is that what we're witnessing? To try to answer this question, we talked with war crimes expert Leila Sadat of Washington University in St. Louis. Genocide is extremely difficult to prove before an international criminal court. That said, this does look like a pattern of ethnic cleansing or crimes against humanity. So what's the difference there? If it looks like ethnic cleansing, do Russia's actions in Ukraine then constitute genocide? That is a complicated question, Leila. The international community has said that sometimes ethnic cleansing can be a form of genocide, and we've seen that in early decisions from the International Criminal Court in the situation involving Darfur, where the prosecutor did charge genocide because there was, in fact, a pattern of ethnic cleansing, destroying villages, driving people away from their homes, terrorizing a civilian population. Very similar pattern to what we saw in the former Yugoslavia, what we saw in Darfur, and we are now seeing today in Ukraine. Why the international outcry here? I mean, Russian forces conducted themselves similarly in Syria, civilians being targeted and killed. We saw it in Chechnya. And now a call for war crime charges and possible genocide charges. We definitely have seen this before, and it's a really awful movie. Right now, Mariupol looks like Aleppo. In fairness, there were calls for criminal prosecution. We had two vetoes by the Russian Federation in the Security Council with respect to Syria, and we did not have the international political well sufficient to overcome that through either the establishment of a no-fly zone to stop the atrocities or creating a special tribunal to try those crimes because the vehicle for getting to the International Criminal Court was blocked. Fortunately, Ukraine had the foresight to declare that the International Criminal Court statute was applicable to its territory in 2014 and 2015. So unlike Syria's Assad, who would never, never accept the jurisdiction of the ICC, the Ukrainian president and parliament has done that. And so the ICC does have jurisdiction here. And one also has to say that I think at some point, the fact that the invasion was done in such a blatant fashion to a European neighbor clearly played a part. You mentioned that genocide is really hard to prove, but right now what we're seeing in Bucha and Chernihiv, these places that have been liberated from Russian forces, are these pockets of genocide or is that ethnic cleansing? I think for me, it's still kind of unclear to me legally what the difference is. 
So in the former Yugoslavia, the massacre at Srebrenica, for example, was labeled mm -hmm. and adjudicated a genocide, even though some of the violence in other communities around the former Yugoslavia was labeled crimes against humanity. The differentiation right. that the tribunal made was that with respect to Srebrenica, we had a specific intent that we could demonstrate, and they actually used cell phone intercepts and documents and communications in order to show that. And they also showed that a substantial part of the population was exterminated, and that by exterminating the men and boys of Srebrenica, these 8,000 mm -hmm. individuals who were slaughtered, that actually made it impossible for the community to ever be constituted again. Is it easy to assess based off the fact that we've seen mass graves, that we've seen these burned bodies, these bodies that have been stripped and people who had seemingly been executed, the mock executions, the sexual violence, all of this stuff? We are definitely seeing evidence of crimes against humanity and war crimes. Genocide requires this special intent. So we mm -hmm. actually have to show that they're committing all these terrible crimes in order to destroy in part or in whole the particular group. And so that's why genocide is more difficult because you have to get into the mind of the perpetrator as opposed to being looking at the circumstantial evidence that we can see with our own eyes and our own ears. Yeah. The other thing I would say, Layla, is that crimes against humanity are just as serious as genocide. There's no hierarchy here. Crimes against humanity is what the Nazis were charged with for the Holocaust. And yeah. so I know that the international community and victim groups tend to grab for this concept of genocide because we have a treaty on it. And we don't yet have the treaty on crimes against humanity. So it seems as if they're less important. They're not less important. They are absolutely horrific crimes that involve attacks on a civilian population and the dehumanization of the human spirit and human beings. So it's yeah. really important to note that this idea of ethnic cleansing and crimes against humanity is a very, very serious crime. Now, the U.S. has promised to help with any type of investigation into possible Russian war crimes. But, you know, some people would point to the U.S. and say, well, this is hypocritical or politically motivated when the U.S. is not a member of the ICC and does not appear to want to be held accountable for its own alleged war crimes. It is hypocritical, and yet it's a really good thing. The Biden administration is seriously considering dismantling some of the obstacles to cooperation with the International Criminal Court because it can see that this is exactly the kind of situation the ICC was created to address. We have a prosecutor already with jurisdiction. We have judges already to approve arrest warrants and hear uh, confirmation cases. We don't have to staff up and hire new people and figure out what law should be applied, we have a court ready and willing to do the job. And those of us who have been involved with the International Criminal Court for 20 years have been making this argument for 20 years. So is the United States coming a day late to the party? It absolutely is. And I think it's great that it's finally getting there. Leila Sadat is a professor of international law at Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. Now, what is it like for Ukrainians who survived one of the darkest episodes in history, the Holocaust, only to find themselves back in the place they once feared? 
A major effort is underway to keep these elderly refugees safe from Russian shelling by bringing some to Germany. Here's Esme Nicholson reporting from Berlin. It's lunchtime at a retirement home on the eastern edge of Berlin. Half a dozen sprightly ladies in their 80s and 90s are sitting at the rowdy table. (laughs) Here, these women are full of life, but they've just narrowly escaped death for the second time in their lives. They are Ukrainian Holocaust survivors who fled the Nazis as children. Now, in old age, they're on the run again, this time from Russia. Among them is 83-year-old Sonia Lebona Tatakovskaya. She's from Irpin, near Kiev, where Ukrainian authorities say they have found evidence of Russian atrocities carried out on civilians. She says she's immensely relieved to be here, but her frail, childlike build betrays immeasurable suffering. For 20 days before I arrived, I was without gas without water, without light. I weighed 100 pounds, my normal weight. And when I came here, I weighed almost half that. As the other women leave for an afternoon nap, Tatakovskaya stays behind to talk with 90-year-old Ala Ilyanitsya Sinelnikova, who has just arrived from Kharkiv. This war is a catastrophe. It's truly awful. I never thought I would live to see such horror for a second time in my life. I thought it was in my past, all over and done with. And now we're reliving it. Sinanikova was nine years old when she fled Khashiv the first time, fearing Nazi persecution. She says she can't believe she's now hiding in Berlin from the Russians, the very people who liberated her as a child from the Germans. It is a strange paradox. I never believed the Russians would invade us. Half of my family are from Russia. How can I hate them? I can't, even if I wanted to. Rudy Marlow from the Jewish Claims Conference in Germany, a non-profit organization that helps Holocaust survivors, is coordinating the evacuation effort on the ground. He says it takes about 50 different parties to evacuate just one elderly person by ambulance out of Ukraine. And once they're here, he says, they need to be housed in care facilities where the staff speak Russian or Ukrainian. Like in any war, the most weak people are the most vulnerable people. And Holocaust survivors belong to the most vulnerable people. For them, the situation is devastating. Marlow says that some of the survivors trapped in Ukraine refused to set foot in Germany because of the past, so he's trying to find alternatives for them. We have the re-traumatization of the survivors, but we wanted the survivors, the Holocaust survivors, to feel safe and to feel not abandoned as they were in the beginning of their life. 83-year-old Sonia Tatakovskaya has now finished her lunch. She says she's put on 10 pounds since arriving in Berlin and adds that if it weren't for her neighbours, she'd be dead. I lived alone. I have nobody. My whole family is long buried in cemeteries in different cities. But thanks to strangers, I got out of Iopin. My neighbours didn't leave me behind. They took me with them. Tartakovskaya was just three years old the first time she fled war. She says that as difficult as it is to be a refugee again, she knows she's one of the lucky ones. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. 
This is State of Ukraine. Milton Gavada produced and Catherine Laidlaw edited this episode. I'm Leila Falden. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. NPR.